Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. If you have your Bible, says go ahead and turn to Daniel. Um, and let me pray for us as we get into the text. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, so much for your mercy and your grace that you have lavished upon us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus, you died for us. You who knew no sin became sin and took all of our sin, past, present, future, and paid for it in full once and for all. And because of your work, we have been made alive. And that is, this is all by your grace. And Lord, with that in mind, help us to approach your word knowing that you are a holy God, that you are a righteous God, that you are good, loving, kind, compassionate, and yet you still rightfully judge sin. Lord, I pray that, um, can you give us wisdom? Can you give us clarity? Can you help us with eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand and comprehend. And can you transform our hearts? Holy Spirit, we know that we cannot understand the word without you. So can you illuminate truth to us? Can you stir our hearts and our affections so that we may behold Jesus as Lord? as Savior, as King. Can you meet us where we are? Lord, you know what we're going through. You know our fears, our pains, our struggles, our insecurities. Can you minister to us uh, through your word? And Lord, can you encourage us to remain faithful as we're trusting in the work that you've accomplished for us? So come, Lord, and meet us. Come, Lord, and speak to us. And make yourself known. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Um, and so if you um, are ready for today, um, one of the things I've been trying to do over the last two weeks is to kind of set you up for disappointment as we get to our passage today, uh, which I hope I've accomplished. Uh, so you are coming here with low expectations, and that was my ultimate goal. Um, So as we look at chapter 9, we've already looked at chapter 9, I really want to do a little bit of a review because I do think that Daniel's prayer is really crucial to the next passage that we're going to talk about. So in Daniel chapter 9, we saw Daniel's prayer. And in Daniel's prayer, we made a few observations. One of the observations we made is we saw the flow from Scripture to prayer. Daniel's prayer began with Scripture and his entire prayer was saturated with Scripture. We, we saw the second observation. We saw Daniel's posture of humility in prayer. He sought the Lord's face with sackcloth, ashes, and fasting. We saw his prayer of his honest corporate confession of sin in prayer. Like much of his prayer was confessing sin, 
not his sin, but the corporate confession of sin, the sin of his people. And we saw Daniel in his prayer was a broken man. And I think the reason why Daniel was a broken man was not because he felt guilty because of his sins, but because he looked in God's word and he saw in Jeremiah that the Lord is holy. And in seeing that the Lord is holy, he is reminded, oh no, we are unholy. And in his prayer and his confession of sin, he's continually appealing to the character of God. The reason, in a sense, the reason he's saying, the reason why the Lord should forgive us, why the Lord should restore us, is not because they've been doing any better, they've turned things around, and now all of a sudden they're trusting the Lord. No. Why does Daniel say the Lord must forgive them? Because of his righteousness, because of his compassion. You see, Daniel understood this principle that the righteousness of God is both the basis for his judgment and for his forgiveness. So in a sense, Daniel is pleading for forgiveness because of God's character, because of his righteousness, his compassion. In a sense, in his prayer, what is he doing? He is longing for the Lord to act. He is longing for the Lord to deal with their sins, to somehow provide a savior because Daniel understands that we are unholy people, rebellious people, standing in a righteous judge God who is supposed to judge us of our sins. But Lord, please act. Please provide a savior. Please deal with our sins once and for all. So in a sense... In his prayer, what Daniel was longing for, and the answer to his prayer is who? Jesus. He is longing for God to act through his son, Jesus. Now, understanding that part is going to impact how we now look at the second part. Now, before we look at the second part, let's talk a little bit, and I need to make a few legal disclosures in this part, okay? So, As we get to the second part, we have to be real honest. Like this is probably the most difficult text in the book of Daniel and maybe even in the whole Old Testament. One scholar says this, he says, reading the different commentaries on these verses is like entering into a bewildering maze with so many choices, so many ways that leads to blind alleys and dead ends. So what do we do when we enter into this bewildering maze and there are so many options and so many views on this verse that leads to that verse that leads to this verse and then you're wondering what in the world is going on? So here is my job and here's what I'm trying to accomplish. We're going to look at this bewildering maze and then we're going to take a tractor and just plow through the maze a straight shot, okay? That's what we're going to do. We're just going to plow right through it and try to look at the big picture. But that does not mean I have to make some interpretive decisions, okay? I have to make some interpretive decisions. Are you okay with that? Please be so. So a couple of legal disclosures. Uh, I consulted with some of my attorneys. This is what they said. Um, I borrowed this from a pastor. I thought it was very funny. He said, I reserve the right to change my mind during the sermon, after the sermon, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I die or Jesus comes back. I might change my mind in the middle of my message. I might change it afterwards. I might change it in 10 years. I might continually change it. You have the right, that's my right, you have the right to disagree with me. 
and still remain a brother and sister in Christ. Here's what we have to understand about this passage. There are godly men and women that study this passage and not agree with one another on it. And yet, they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, especially in our culture today, we need to deal with this passage in humility and being charitable with one another. Like, we live in a culture, unfortunately, and this is why, like, not that I'm nervous about it, but, but we live in a culture that the second there's a disagreement, what do we do? We just do name-calling. Oh, you're this, you're that. That's not helpful. So if there is a brother or sister that disagrees with you on that passage, don't go make absolute statements calling them a heretic or the harlot of Babylon or whatever you want to call them. Like, like just say, hey, bro, I agree with you. I disagree with you. You could be right. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You could be right. Hey, let, let's just look at this passage. So now that I've made my legal disclosures, let's get into this text humbly and charitably. Uh, look at verse, verse 20. It says this, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation, Daniel, I have come now to give you understanding at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I've come to give it for you are treasured by God, so consider the message and understand the vision. This part is still easy, okay? So so what's going on here? What is Daniel doing? Daniel is, is praying. He's been seeking the Lord confessing sin, petitioning to the Lord on behalf of his character to deal with their sin, to forgive them. He's in sackcloth and ashes, and he describes that in his prayer, he's weary, he is tired. And what's the Lord doing? The second Daniel prayed, the Lord heard his prayer, answered his prayer by sending Gabriel. So here's the first observation we have to make in the passage we're studying. What Gabriel is doing is he is answering Daniel's prayer. Daniel was praying. The Lord is answering Daniel's prayer through a messenger, Gabriel, to give him insight and understanding. Now again, what was Daniel praying for? Daniel was longing for what? He was longing for God to act. He was longing for God to deal with their sins, to forgive them, to restore them. In a sense, he was asking for a savior. He was asking for Jesus. And what does God do? God answers. And he says, Daniel, God sent me. Here is what's going to happen. Here is insight and understanding. All right, let's move on to verse 24. Seventy weeks, or in some of your translations, it will say 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint 
the most holy place. Now, as we look at the, 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 the message, the beginning of the message, giving Daniel understanding, an answer to his prayer, longing for Jesus, the angel starts off with giving a date, 70 weeks. And what we'll see is we'll see the, the seven throughout verses 24 and 27, and it addresses 70 weeks, or the actual Hebrew rendering is 70 sevenths. Because how many days is in a week? Seven. So 70 sevens. Now, most scholars agree that the 70 sevens or the 70 weeks represents years. Most scholars agree on that part. So if you take 70 and you times it with seven, if you failed math, here's the answer, 490, okay? So basically, Gabriel is telling Daniel, 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city. So here is our first obstacle. Do we take the 490 years to mean literal years, or do we take it to mean symbolic? Okay? This is the decision we have to make, and there's many people that differ on it. And I think both views kind of have some strengths and weaknesses. For example, if we take the 490 to mean literal, then that means our entire interpretation of this text is dictated by dates, and we become so focused on the dates that we have a tendency to neglect the big picture of what's going on. So then I have to have a whiteboard and I try to have to kind of squeeze in my dates and show how all of it is playing out. If we take it symbolically, then we might catch the big picture. But the problem with that is then we kind of ignore the dates. And since the dates are kind of given, then that means they're somewhat important. So do you see kind of the strengths and the weaknesses of both? Both have shortcomings. So... What decision am I going to make? Let's rock, paper, scissors for it. Literal, symbolic. Um, I do think the best way to take these dates are symbolic. And here, here's why. And again, I could be wrong, and you can 100% disagree with me, and I'm cool with that. When it comes to not all dates, but especially when we're looking at this passage, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, Right? Um, it's not an historic event, but it's apocalyptic literature, which means there is this literature is full of imagery and symbolisms. And when there's apocalyptic literature with symbolisms and meanings, numbers have certain meanings. So, for example, in the Bible, uh, and you probably know the answer, like, what is the number of man? Six. What's the number of completion? Seven. Did you see what I mean? Numbers sometimes have meanings. They convey certain messages. That's my first reason why I think it's symbolic. Second reason for that is this. Here's the problem if we take the date literally. At times, those dates might, line, might, might not line up. Here's why I say this. For example, if you take the dates, where do you start the count? Do you begin the first 49 years when Ezra returned and rebuilt the temple? Or do you do it when Nehemiah returned and rebuilt the walls? See how you got to squeeze it in? 
The 70 years of the exile ending, do you start that 70 years with the first exile, the second, or the third? Now you kind of have to squeeze things in. And then if you go with the, the, the 62 sevens, which is 434, where do you count that? Does it count when Jesus got baptized or when Jesus proclaimed to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday? And then now scholars start disagreeing. No, it should be this because the dates don't line up. And do you see now it all becomes about the dates. And now we haven't even talked about gap years because the second you deal with dates... The dates don't line up, and now you say, well, we've got to add a gap here. And it's like, well, I just don't see it line up. So this is, what, this is just my problem with it. I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. I'm just saying as I look at it, this is kind of my issue with it. So this is why I make the decision of symbolism. So if it's symbolic, you're like, okay, I disagree with you, but tell me, let me just hear out what the symbolism means, okay? Think about this. Think about the number 490. What, what does it convey? Like where else in scripture do we read about the number seven or seven times seven? Again, the best way to interpret scripture is with what? Scripture. So if we want to find maybe meanings of numbers or what it possibly convey, where do we go? Let's go to scripture. So where do we read seven times seven? Where do we read 49 or 490? Leviticus 25. So you can turn to it if you, yeah, go ahead and turn to it. I think we have time. Leviticus 25, uh, verse 8 to 10. I'll turn it with you, even though I have it here. Leviticus uh, 25, verse 8. Okay. Everybody got it? All right. So you are to count, there's our number, seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49, not 490, but 49. Then you are to sound a ram's horn loudly in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. You are to consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim freedom in the land for all of its inhabitants. The fiftieth year will be your jubilee. You're not to sow, reap what grows by itself or harvest its unintended vines. It is to be holy to you because it is the jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. So in Leviticus 25, we see the multiplication of seven times seven years that results in 49 years. So that 49th year, what does it do? It, in a sense, build up an expectation. Because what happens the next year? Jubilee. You know what happens in the year of Jubilee? All of your debt... If you have a ton of debt, canceled. The land that you sold to pay off your debt, I saw somebody say amen, wish it could happen to me. The land that you sold to pay off your debt returned to you. Your wife and your children that you had to sell off been given back to you. It's a time of redemption, freedom, and also a time of rest because guess what you don't do on the 50th year? You don't sow, you don't harvest, you live off the land because of God's abundant provision. 
So you're like, okay, well, what does it have to do with the 490 years? In Gabriel's message, what's Daniel longing for? He's, he's basically just longing for God to take his people out of exile and bring them back to the promised land, to forgive their sins and to restore them to where they once were. But God sends Gabriel and he says, 490 years is decreed. In other words, 490 years denotes the next year is jubilee. But this is not any normal kind of jubilee. This is a tenfold jubilee. This is a jubilee that you have never experienced. And I know for some of you are thinking, Neil, you're kind of reaching here. I don't see it. No, look at, look at the task that will be accomplished. Look at the reasons for this jubilee. The reasons for the jubilee in verse 24, verse 24 is this, to bring rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. What does the word everlasting mean? Everlasting. I don't know how else to say Forever. To seal up visions and prophecies. In other words, all the prophetic words that the prophets have given that spoke about God's redemption and how God would restore you and bring you back, all of them will be fulfilled and to anoint the most holy place. So, so in a sense, what, what, what's happening here, Daniel was praying for the Lord to deal with their sins. And God responds and hears his prayer and responds in a tenfold kind of ways. Like, let me get a little bit on the charismatic end. How does God answer Daniel's prayer? In a tenfold ways. He doesn't just answer his prayer for what he wants. God, in a sense, is saying, Daniel, that's cute. Why would I just want to restore you to back where you were? Let me give you something better. Let me not just forgive your sins, but let me deal with your sins once and for all. Let me take the rebellion that you're constantly struggling with and wipe it away. Let me give you a righteousness that endures forever, that all the prophets are speaking about. And let my holy place, a.k.a. my anointed one, be anointed anointed once and for all. And this is what Daniel longed for. And God takes it and say, oh, it's going to be a jubilee 10 times than you would ever expect. So here's the big picture of the vision. Regardless, literal, symbolic, this, that. Here's the big picture. If you're taking notes, the big picture is this. The big picture of this vision and what Gabriel is delivering to Daniel is that God is going to act through his anointed one and he's going to usher in a time of redemption, a time of freedom, aka a tenfold time of jubilee. Can you imagine experiencing a tenfold jubilee where all of your debt forgiven, where you are rightfully restored, where you enter a place of rest and abundant provision, everlasting righteousness. This is what God is promising to Daniel. And this is the big picture. Now, let's look at how 
the anointed one is going to accomplish this list in verse 24. So when I say the list in verse 24, that's the to bring rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity. Again, that's basically like here's the title. Now we're going to look at how in the world is the anointed one going to accomplish all those tasks, which Daniel probably looked at and said, that, that seems impossible, but not with the anointed one. Everybody understands me? Okay, let, let, let's move on. Verse 25. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So what we see is the first seven, first seven sevens, and the next 62 sevens basically seems to deal with the space of time that is envisioned from the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, okay? So as history unfolds, what do we know about that? We know that uh, Cyrus issued a decree, allowed the Jews to return. They rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls. Jerusalem was restored. However, was it a good time for Jerusalem? Really not. It was a difficult time for Jerusalem, especially under the rule of the Greek Empire. Antiochus Epiphanes, remember how we talked about that crazy guy and the things he made the Jews do? And then after that, you had the Roman Empire, it was difficult, but I want you to pay attention to this because my eye catches the dates, and guess what happens to me? I'm confused. You're like, oh, seven sevens, 62 sevens, ah, oh, what will happen? But I want you to pay attention to this. Notice, the anointed one is mentioned before the seven weeks and after the 60 weeks in verse 26. So the anointed one is first, look at verse 25, until anointed one, the ruler will be seven weeks. Look to verse 26. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Now in our Western mindset, we are linear people. A leads to B, C leads to D, you know, logic. That's how, that's how we operate. That's how we think. But in Hebrew literature... When something is mentioned before and after, what's the point? That. The point is not the dates. The point is the anointed one. In other words, the anointed one, he is the grand goal of the 77s. It is all about the anointed one. And what is the ultimate goal of the 77s? Who will usher in the, the ultimate jubilee? The anointed one. He is the one who's going to accomplish the task we read in verse 24. He's going to usher in a time of redemption and freedom. Let's move on to, to verse 26. This is where, we, where it gets now really hairy. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. 
I'm going to read verse 27 as well. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And again, as we just read it for face value, we're thinking, what in the world is going on? There's anointed one, there's a coming ruler, there's desolation, abomination, all this kind of elations. I'll, I'll be real honest with you. I've spent hours reading commentaries, and I just walked away just really confused. I'm just, just keeping it real. Let's, I do think that the most simplest way to look at this text, let's just take the tractor and just plow through the maze. Um, I think if you look at verse 26 and verse 27, I think, and a commentator was very helpful in this, they're saying the same thing. Notice the same pattern in both verse 26 and 27. There's a pattern of redemption and a pattern of judgment. In verse 20, and I'm going to show you, so don't freak out. In verse 26, let me show you the pattern of redemption and judgment. Verse 27, let me show you the pattern of redemption and judgment. Okay? So let's look at verse 26. Let's see the pattern of uh, redemption. This one is easy to spot. Look at verse 26. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. What does that mean? That's a pretty easy one. That symbolizes Jesus that was cut off and had nothing. In other words, he died. He was taken out of sight of the city gates where he was crucified. His people rejected him. His disciples abandoned him. One betrayed him and his father had forsaken him. And again... Remember verse 26 and light of verse 24. Why does the anointed one need to be cut off? What is the anointed one accomplishing? Verse 24 is what? To bring a rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint a most holy one that is him. So the anointed one accomplished this redemption by being cut off, dying on the cross. That's the redemption part. Now in verse, the second part of verse 26, now we read the, the judgment part. And we read, the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with the flood. Until the end, there will be war, desolations, or decree. Now, just let, remember how I said I'm going to try to plow a straight path? I'm going to take a little bit of a, a swing and then go straight, okay? So, so, most, so, so some scholars believe when they read verse 26, the coming ruler, they are thinking that is the, the Antichrist, okay? Um, so that's the Antichrist that destroys the temple, that destroys Jerusalem. And maybe it's not the Antichrist, but it's the shadow of the Antichrist, and that is basically the Roman general Titus, um, I'm going to take a little detour, very short. I don't think that's the Antichrist or, or Titus. I think the coming ruler is Jesus. Here's why, okay? In verse 25, the anointed one is described as what? You read the anointed one, comma, the ruler or the, the prince, okay? And so, if the anointed one is the ruler, the prince... 
then why is not the anointed one the coming ruler? Isn't he the coming king who will rule and reign? And if we don't see it as the anointed one, but we see it as the shadow of the Antichrist or the, all the Antichrist, now we've got to add a gap in our dates. And remember I said, now we've got to add gaps to the dates. And the problem with the whole Antichrist thing, you need a gap of thousands of years. But, so, so bear with me, if, and I could be wrong, if we say that the anointed one is the coming ruler, you're thinking to yourself, well, that kind of is ridiculous. Then who are the people of the coming ruler who's destroying Jerusalem? Who are the people of the coming ruler? That is the, the Jews. Now you're like thinking, well, Neil, that's kind of outrageous that you would accuse the Jews of destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple. But think with me for, for a second. Who's responsible for the first exile that occurred? The Babylonians or the people of God? Both, right? God used the Babylonians because what did the Jews do? They rebelled against God, broke his covenant, did not keep his law. So in a sense, they're responsible for the first exile. It was on their actions. What did the Jews do to the Messiah? They handed him over to Pilate. And they chanted, crucify. When Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he preached to Jews, what did he tell them? You guys killed them. You're responsible for it. So in a sense, even though Pilate crucified Jesus, who's responsible for it? The Jews that handed Jesus over. So as we look at this text, we can clearly say as history unfolds, Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. But the Jews played a part in it. They were the ones who rejected the Messiah. They were the ones who handed him over to, be to, to, to death, persecuted the church, wanting nothing to do with this Messiah. And what we see in verse 26, we see the redemption and the judgment that the Messiah rightfully judged the Jews in destroying this temple. And did Jesus not predict the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Matthew 24? And in verse 34, did he not say this generation would not pass away before it happened? And as it's saying that the armies were surrounded, the desolation has come near, which means the armies have surrounded. And if you really read the account of Josephus, the war of the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, it was horrific. And in a sense, we can say that was part of the judgment of Jesus. Now, I know for us, we quick want to jump on this. Well, you know, Jesus says he doesn't judge. No, he saves, and because he saves, he, he rightfully judges. Is the judgment going to happen at the end? Yeah, it will happen in the end, but it doesn't mean it's not happening right now. God is judging right now, and in that prophecy, he said he is going to judge, and he rightfully did that. Let, let's look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. 
Again, if we go with my view, and again, I could be wrong, so let's just deal with it humbly and charitably. If we see verse 26 and verse 27 saying the same thing, the same pattern, let me show you this pattern. Let's look at what's the pattern again in verse 26, 27, redemption and judgment. Let's look at the pattern of redemption. He, if that's the anointed one, we're still talking about the anointed one, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. Because of the Messiah's work on the cross, his blood that was shed for us, he established what? A covenant. This covenant was a firm covenant, or a better word, a strong covenant. With the many means, not the quantity of it, but both with the Jews and the Gentiles. He makes this covenant, the covenant that Isaiah, the covenant that Jeremiah and the prophets spoke about, this new covenant. And what is a result of this new covenant? What comes to an end with this new covenant? Sacrifice. Offerings. You're like, Neil, you're just pulling it out of thin air. No. Read Hebrews chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10. It will constantly beat the drum and say, why go back to the old if you've experienced the new? There's no need for sacrifice. There's no need for offering. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He paid for our sins once and for all. He was the lamb that was slaughtered, that atoned for our sins. There's nothing more to add. So trust that what Christ has done is sufficient for you. This is the redemption part, the judgment part. For half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. This meant that the 70th week would involve more than just the Messiah's work of redemption, but will also involve the Messiah's work of judgment. And that's why the 70th week is divided in half. With the first three and a half years refers to the work of redemption, and the second three and a half years refers to the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we read the judgment and the abomination, the second part of verse 27, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. What's it describing? It's describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And the wing of the temple can describe the extreme abomination that is in view, brought about by a swiftly attacking army. Like Titus purposefully stood in the most holies of holy places, looked around at all the rubble. And you know what he was probably thinking? I am bigger than their God. Matthew 24 helps us look at this. When Jesus refers to the the abomination of desolation, he had the prophetic word of Daniel in mind. That's in verse 15. And so what helps us interpret this text is really Jesus addressing the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in Matthew 24. Now, let's move on. We're running out of time here. Let's say it got lost in the weeds. Regardless of your view, literal, symbolic, 
the anointed one is the Messiah, and the coming ruler is the Antichrist. And the, anti, the, the last verse 27 has really not, has not been fulfilled yet. It is a gap of a thousand years that's going to come when the Antichrist comes. If that's your view, that is cool. God bless you. Hold on to that. That's fine. Be humble. Be charitable with it. But what's the big picture here? What's going on? What's been happening in the midst of this text? Daniel praying. Daniel pleading to the Lord for mercy. Daniel longing for salvation. And in Daniel's mind, his salvation was this just them getting back to Jerusalem, being restored to the former days. But in the midst, what is God doing? God sent an answer. He takes his tiny little prayer and blows it up tenfold. And he says to Daniel, I'm going to act through my anointed one that is going to bring a tenfold jubilee. And all of this is going to be accomplished. All of the rebellion will come to an end. All of your sins will be stopped. Your iniquities will be toned for. A righteousness will be given to you that will be everlasting. And all of the visions, all of the prophets that were longing for God's redemptive work to occur, that spoke about it to encourage the people, all will be fulfilled. And the Holy One, the Lamb of God, the King of all kings, the Alpha and the Omega will be anointed. These events have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That's what we can agree on. The other parts, we can disagree on. But we can agree who's the anointed one. So in a sense, when Daniel received this vision, Daniel longed for what God was going to do. We read this vision. What do we do? We not necessarily long for what God is going to do, although we're trusting him to finish it, but we look back in what God has done. What does that mean? That requires faith. That means that as we read this vision, as we read about this promise of Jubilee, we look back and say, yes and amen, it has been accomplished but it has not been fully realized. That reality has been achieved. But what do we do with that reality at times? We forget it. We live as if it doesn't happen. And this is why we come and we gather and we open up the word and we proclaim Christ. We sit at the table to remind you of what? Remember of what the Lord has done. Don't forget it. Live in light of that. As Paul would say, all God's promises is yes in Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. So what's some practical applications other than just confusing you eschatologically, which was not my goal? I think one of the first practical applications is just in prayer. Like, look at how the Lord answered Daniel's prayer. If you're discouraged in praying... You feel like the Lord's not answering. Keep praying. Why? Because the Lord answers. Did the Lord answer exactly what Daniel wanted? No, he actually gave him way more. That does not mean the Lord's going to give you more what you asked for. But it means he's going to give you what is right for you, what is best for you. 
And the Lord, I almost think the Lord looks at Daniel and says, Daniel, why do you want to go back to Jerusalem to the good old days? If I can give you something way better, an ultimate jubilee. And that's the same for us when we're seeking the Lord, when we're crying out to him and we want him to move and we want him to save and we want him to restore. Like we can do that in faith knowing the Lord hears, the Lord answers, and the Lord has promised. So don't be discouraged in seeking the face of the Lord. Continually seeking and believe that the Lord is working, that he is faithful to his promises. Remember what he has already accomplished especially when we find out our our times and suffering and uncertainty and living in a world full of chaos. I think the second application is the gospel message of Jesus is a word of jubilee. It is a word of jubilee because what does it do? It liberates us from the wages of sin. It liberates us from the power of sin. One person, amen, wishing that all their debt would be forgiven and they would be restored. Isn't that what the gospel just does? Maybe not your physical debt, which you're going to die and your kids are going to take care of anyway, so don't worry about that. I'm just kidding. But your spiritual debt, your debt has been paid for in full. You have been set free from the power of sin. Think about this. Jesus Christ delivered you from the greatest captor and he has brought you out from the deepest exile that's known to man. That's what he did. That's what he promised to Daniel. And that's what we look back and say, oh my, he actually has done that. He has conquered. And because he has conquered, that means we have conquered. His victory now becomes our victory. So what does that mean for us? If the gospel is a message of jubilee based on what Christ has accomplished and achieved and delivering us from our captive, from taking us out of the deepest exile and restoring us into his promised land that we're longing for the greater reality. What does that mean for us? That means that in the midst of this world, when everybody is discouraged, why do we not have to be discouraged? Our debt's been paid for. We've been delivered from the greatest captor known to man. The deepest exile that nobody can come out of, Jesus delivered us. We can tell others about it. Hey, your sin that so enslaves you, Let me tell you about the one who has come to set you free and pay for it in full. He's not just giving you advice how to do it. He's doing it for you. That means that in our times of struggle, in our times of fears, uncertainties, anxieties, we can walk through it trusting that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord has delivered us. We can look to him and say, He has given us a strong covenant that is conditioned on Christ and Christ alone. Like that should encourage us as believers. We don't need to look for hope. We have hope. We don't need to look for peace. We have peace. We need to walk in faith, trusting of what he's done and looking forward to what he is going to do. And so maybe you here this morning feel discouraged and you feel overwhelmed in life and you don't know whether you're coming or going. You're overwhelmed with anxieties and fears. My answer to you is, 
look to Christ. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done for you. Remember the firm covenant that he has established with his blood. Rest in it. Trust in it. Walk in it. And if you're a non-believer, my my answer to you for the believer and the non-believer is the same. Look to Christ. You are enslaved to sin. You are in the deepest of exile and there's nothing you can do about it. You need a savior, a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. And he has set you free by dying for you, by paying for your sins in full. And your response is, trust in him. So either way we look at it, all of us can agree, let's look to Christ, the anointed one that has done the impossible. Because I guarantee you, Daniel's thinking about this vision and say, this sounds too good to be true. And we can look at it now and say, but it is true. This is what he has done. Let me pray for us, and then we get to the table. Lord, I thank you that you hear our prayers and that you have answered our prayers. And Lord, I do think, even though we might not always know it, the answer to most of our prayers is you, Lord Jesus. Help us to realize it. Help us to understand it. Help us to look to you for it. And Lord, as, as we kind of enter into this time of examination, Lord, you know what we're going through. Our fears, our struggles, our insecurities, our anxieties. Can you help us to look to you, to trust you? Can you help us to surrender everything to you? Can you help us to behold you? To turn from our sins and turn to you. To trust in the work that you have done and not trust in ourselves of being better or trying to accomplish anything. As we continue to pray and we get ready to sit at the table, I just have a question. Are you looking to Christ? Are you trusting in what he's done for you? When you look at the, the mess of your life, and all of us have a mess, by the way, are you focusing on what you need to do to get out of it? Or are you trusting in what Christ has done for you? And because he set you free, you're no longer enslaved to it. You can walk in obedience to him, trusting him. As we get to the table, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. The firm and the strong covenant that he has established with us. His body that was given to us, his blood that was shed for us. And when we receive it, in a sense, by faith, we're saying, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you for your body that was given to me, your blood that was shed for me, the new covenant that you have established for me. I can rest in it. I can trust it. Thank you for delivering me from the greatest captor and from the deepest exile. Help me to fully realize the reality of what you've done the victory that you have accomplished. And so as we distribute these elements, like meditate on that truth 
And maybe for you, if this is your first time here, you're not a believer, just simply pass the elements along. It doesn't really mean much. If you want to know what it means, please come and talk to us. We'd love to walk through with you and show you exactly what it means and why we do it and what it points us to, a.k.a. Jesus. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements together and share in them. think I just want you to imagine this at times you feel trapped in life at times you feel enslaved feel like you're in bondage you feel like giving up you're discouraged you're overwhelmed what do you do Jesus comes to you he picks you up takes off your clothes gives you new clothes and he says my body It's been given to you. Eat it. Feast on it in remembrance of what I've done for you. My blood has been shed for you. I paid for your sins in full, past, present, and future. I've established a new covenant between you and God. It's based on my blood. Drink it. In remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done. We thank you for the work that you're doing right now and for the work that you are going to finish when you come back once and for all and make all things new. And what a glorious day that would be. And Lord, in the meantime, help us as brothers and sisters to behold you, to fix our eyes on you. Help us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us and help us to run the race with endurance. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to give up, but help us to persevere through the end. Help us to encourage one another and faithfully point one another to you and what you've done and say that if the Lord has been faithful in the past and all of his promises so far has been fulfilled in Jesus, then surely he will remain faithful in his promises for us today. So help us, Lord. And may we stand and may we respond and say, man, our Lord is faithful. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.